Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And in this episode, we're talking about designer jeans with a G, not with a J. What? Yeah. I know you wore your best jeans. I, I have I my Jordache jeans on just for this episode. Well, you, know, you can still enjoy wearing them, but uh, but yeah, we're taking things to genetic level here. And uh, this is uh, based in large part on a World Science Festival panel that you attended uh, in New York City. That's right. Designer jeans fashioning our biological future, which you can check out. You can just uh, you can Google WSF or excuse me, World Science Festival, I should say. And designer jeans and, and look at a very spirited discussion about the future of reproduction and uh, a couple of really great panelists on there. But uh, we wanted to bring it to you guys' attention because some of the technology that's happening is fascinating and it brings up all sorts of uh, ideas and problems and solutions maybe yeah I mean there's a, there's a lot of controversy in this uh, this general area of, of scientific uh, investigation and discovery and there has been for some time because we're, you end up diving down into some of the central ideas about what it is to be human and how the, the how humans work as a species how we evolve or how we don't evolve and uh, and people get a bit touchy about that I mean and to your point they, they get a bit touchy about it in this uh, panel you attended and Certainly, that's what makes a great panel discussion. Yeah, and the premise of this panel, a couple of uh, questions thrown out there, like, what if you could prevent disease through genetic engineering even before conception? All right. Would you do it? The the gut answer would be yes. Right. You'd want to give your child a leg up in the biological world and, and, um, you know, have that child not have to experience um, some serious disease. But the other question was, what if you could tinker a little bit more with genetics and give that child, say, a propensity for, uh, you know, more robust intellectual skills or powers or even athletic prowess? Hmm. You kind of get into this area of uh, of science and genetic science as a as an honor system candy dish. Do you take the one piece <laughs> yeah. of candy? Or do you, uh, or do you maybe you take a one for later as well? Or maybe you just reach in and get a whole handful. At what point do we self-regulate? At which point do we stop? At what point do we need someone else saying, don't get five candies, only get one? Yeah, and we do have a, a basis in reality to start judging these things by. So we're going to get in the time machine and go back a little bit. Uh, first, we're going to go back to the 1970s in which there was a firestorm in Cambridge. Uh, because there was this idea of recombinant DNA happening at a very serious level. I mean, you have this moment when scientists in genetic engineering were trying to move forward with this, and they were trying to create guidelines with the National Institutes of Health, and we're doing that. And there were a couple of alarmists, a couple of scientists who said, wait a second, we need to sit back, because this is very important here. If you can take a bacteria and you can tinker with its genes... And you can do it in a way that this bacteria survives this and thrives. Mm -hmm. Does this mean that we'll be unleashing pathogens? Does this mean that this ability also uh, allows us to start to create Frankenstein children? Uh, The F word, the scientific F word. Uh, Yeah, which inevitably comes up. I believe we've podcasted on Frankenstein before, not only as a fictional character, but just as an idea, as a symbol of Science gone too far. Science uh, interfering with uh, with 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 the human condition in a in a meaningful way. 
Yeah, and this, of course, is a discussion that has to happen. But mm-hmm. out of this discussion comes, again, these guidelines for genetic engineering, um, many of which are still in place today. And if you want to look at why they had a, a problem with this in the first place, well, you have to go even back further in history and look at the American eugenics movement, which happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s and is fundamentally a misunderstanding of genes and how they work and are passed down in people. Now, are you familiar with the uh, the term eugenics? It, it, it probably carries a certain dark weight for you because mm-hmm. it, it has become synonymous with 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 human breeding programs, essentially, mm-hmm. with uh, forced sterilization and with uh, uh, the, the rise of of, uh, of the Nazi uh, uh, regime in in Germany. Yeah, it's all bungled up in this. So if you look at the American eugenics movement, you see that there's this oversimplification of how genetics works. So you you start to have scientists say, oh, well, we think that these traits are passed down and and here's this imbecile. And really, this is the the jargon that they use in these papers. Um, Here's this imbecile breeding another imbecile. And how could we stop this? Well, sterilization is one way that we could stop it. And they start to actually put this into practice because at the same time this is happening, there are a lot of people who are being institutionalized when they should not have been. So maybe a person had um, a bad case of alcoholism or some other thing that didn't line up to society. And, and the society's best solution at that moment was, well, just put them in an institution. Yeah. And then you have this problem with this eugenics coming online, actually garnering um, some credibility as a way to measure someone's uh, not just IQ, but what their general traits were. Yeah, you see this push to to say, oh, well, this person is, I mean, in, in, in a sense, eugenics at a very basic level has, it's not setting out to do evil. Few, few human endeavors really mm-hmm. say, all right, what can we do to just really make a dark name for ourselves? I mean, the, the idea was essentially, can we improve humans? Can we ensure healthy babies? But you quickly get into this area where you're saying, well, let's just uh, sterilize the uh, the imbeciles. Let's sterilize uh, the criminals. Let's sterilize the homosexuals, and uh, and and inevitably you get into this very dark and inhuman territory. And if someone is institutionalized, in a sense, many of their rights have been taken away. And there mm-hmm. have been uh, there's actually a, a very famous case called Buck versus Bell that looks at whether or not someone has rights on this, and is still. On the on the books, right? It's yeah. a, a law that, and we won't go into it because um, it's a pretty lengthy case. But basically, someone was sterilized because the mom had been in an institution, and the line of reasoning was that she was genetically predisposed to be an imbecile like her mother. Therefore, let's sterilize her. So this is a problem, right? This this line of logic. Uh, moreover, you've got a bit of xenophobia going on uh, mm-hmm. at this time. There's a large immigrant population, so there's this idea. Again, Again, that um, you know that there's a sort of purity right. that's being muddied. Yeah, with if they're other muddying people. our waters. What can we do to purify ours? Yeah, and who does this? Uh, what sort of line of reasoning does this appeal to? Uh, the 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 old Hitler. Yep, yep. The old the old Hitler, as you say, the the Nazi Party. And clearly, yeah, you see, uh, you look back in time, you see Hitler uh, picking up on ideas 
of uh, American American eugenics. You see Mein Kampf referencing uh, the language of the American uh, eugenics movement. You see them sort of in a, a mutual admiration society mm-hmm. where the American eugenics uh, movement individuals and in that are saying, "Oh, well, look at the great work they're doing in in Germany. They're doing so, they're they're, they're so, so much more advanced than we are." And then likewise, you have people on the German side saying, "Oh, the the American eugenics movement, they have it figured out. We we should be doing uh, uh, more of what they're doing." And and both sides are kind of headed for for a, a very real disaster. Right. In fact, some of the ideas and writings of the American eugenics movement shows up in Mein Kampf. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is to the this is the extent to which they are in bed with each other. However, there's a backing off by the American Eugenics Society because eventually what we see are these ideas manifesting themselves in very real ways leading up to World War Two. So thankfully. This movement in America loses a lot of its momentum and people back away from it. And they begin to understand that this is we're going into a territory here that we don't necessarily want to go into. We don't want to sterilize people. But at this point, I do want to point out that 30 states had adopted sterilization policies for those in institutions or jails. So it really did make somewhat of a, a mainstream play here. Yeah, and you look back through it, some notable cases. I mean, for instance, you have Alan Turing, central figure in computer science and AI, prosecuted for homosexuality in 1952 when such acts were still criminalized in the UK, and he accepted treatment with uh, estrogen injections, uh, also known as chemical castration, as an alternative to prison. Um, This little so sad. Yeah, yeah, tragic story. Um, uh, Another interesting case that I ran across, uh, and this surprised me, uh, Sweden. Sweden has a a reputation for being very friendly to uh, LGBT interest for the Mm -hmm. most part, right? But up until uh, 2013, uh, if a Swedish transgender person wanted to legally update their gender on official ID ID papers, uh, a 1972 law required them to both get divorced and sterilized first. Wow. Yeah, they came off the books in 2013. So it's no longer reality, but 2013. So all of this gives, I think, everybody a good idea of, of the basis that scientists are working off in, in 1970 when all of a sudden genetic engineering becomes a very real thing. And mm-hmm. they look back to the past and how this, how um, technology or science or ideas were used and they go forward. Yeah. And I mean, we're still in the shadow of eugenics. Yeah. It's a very long shadow mm-hmm. and it's casting a shadow over... Some technologies now, they're actually very helpful. But again, there's a bit of a firestorm about that. So let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the three-person IVF. All right, we're back. And we're going to talk about a little something called mitochondrial transfer. Or uh, how might have we have heard of this in the media? Okay, uh, it has been picked up as babies with three parents, also called three-person in vitro fertilization, and not used yet uh, would be uh, menage a trois IVF. Yeah, I think we can coin that one. Yeah, we could probably do that. And there would be some. There would be one person on the panel though that would be pretty annoyed with that, and for good reason. Yeah. I mean, because it is a, this is a situation where if you're talking about this in terms of three person, three parent babies, uh, et cetera, y- you are focusing on one little detail of the, the situation and kind of blowing it out of proportion. But how can you not when you're talking about 
a uh, three genetics influencing the birth of a child instead of just two or one in the case of cloning. I just think it's funny that that sort of baggage comes to the table, that this idea that's like menage a trois genetic material coming together, because yeah. it's not really that. Um, and yet that's that's probably the sexiest way that the media or anybody else can kind of describe it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound as sexy because, well, let me just explain really quickly what uh, mitochondrial transfer is. This is when doctors inject the cytoplasm from another woman's egg into the egg of a patient with mitochondrial disease. And the aim here is to eliminate mitochondrial disease from the resulting offspring. But the offspring in question essentially, technically, boasts three genetic parents. Yeah, and we'll get more into yeah. that, to that actual statistic. But, but, but that, yeah, but that's just the, 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 the end point of that. I mean, the important part is you're trying to help a, uh, a, a woman who suffers from mitochondrial disease have healthy offspring that does not suffer from it. That's the aim here. It's not, let's get all Frankenstein and make, uh, make three parent, uh, genetic families. No. No, um, mutations in mitochondrial DNA can cause rare but really serious illnesses and defects, including heart failure, dementia, and blindness. And many of these conditions are fatal. And diseases like diabetes, stroke, cardiac defects, epilepsy, or muscle weakness may originate from mitochondrial defects. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. There's a preventative measure. Um, and let's just kind of back up a little bit uh, and go back to mitochondria because I know I feel like everybody's probably in their like fifth grade or sixth grade class right now talking about the powerhouse of the cell. Um, but it's more than that. It has its own DNA and it's a separate DNA uh, in the nucleus. And mitochondrial DNA is inherited via the mater- maternal line from mother to child. That's okay. why this is a problem, right? It's passed down. So when you do this, when when you make this transfer uh, from a donor egg, the resulting egg, which has the nucleus from the intending mother, has 99.9% of its coding DNA from the intended mother. So we're talking about just an infinitesimal amount Mm-hmm. of genetic material from the donor egg. Right. You cannot say this is like <laughs> a three-person embryo. But technically you can. You technically, yeah, thing. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so, of course, people end up focusing on that. I can't, I mean, I can fault them, but I can't fault people for, for, for finding that idea kind of exciting because, it again, it changes the way you sort of think about what it, it changes the way you think about just two person parentage or, or one person parentage. Well, I mean, it takes me back to when we, talked about chimeras, right? Mm-hmm. This is that case in which there was a person who had ab- not absorbed her twin like intentionally, but you know, she survived and and she um she did absorb her twin, so she had the genetic material from her twin, but she, this was a single birth, right? right? Later on, she went to have children of her own and she had a very serious illness and so the, what they did is they tested the children to see if they they could um I believe give her maybe it was a kidney or something like this, but mm-hmm. they found that the at least two of her three children were not genetic matches. Hmm. They matched the absorbed twins. So the idea here again is that this kind of thing happens in nature sometimes. It's not so crazy. It's not so Frankensteinian. But then we end up we end up calling them chimeras, which is of course the name of a monster as well. Yeah. So you, you kind of can't help but 
but fall into that trap with with language and our understanding of of these uh, these scientific principles. Well, the the problem with mitochondrial transfer, at least right now, is twofold. And one is that there are objections that the embryo would contain genetic material from three different people, and they don't know how this would work, how this would interplay. In other words, would the embryo maybe reject some of that genetic material? Would it cause problems with that child later on? Um, the other part of this is there's a question about whether or not any of those uh, mitochondrial genes from the mother may still be present. Hmm. In other words, you couldn't get all of them out. And that remains to be answered, whether or not there, there'd be a tiny colony um, from the mom with the mutations that might eventually take over the other mitochondrial DNA colony from the donor egg. So it's something we would need to proceed with, with small-scale scale studies on, really, but... But then it involves embryos. It, it, it's, a, it's a hot button issue. How, yeah. how do you get the go ahead to actually research this, even though uh, it could be of tremendous uh, aid to uh, the individual suffering from these mitochondrial diseases that uh, that want to have uh, children? Yeah. And so that's the problem right here. Like, how do you start human clinical trials with these concerns and with some scientists still on the fence of, hey, we shouldn't go down this road because it's a slippery slope. You start doing mitochondrial transfers now and then all of a sudden you'll be creating super babies with all sorts of traits. And so that's that's part and parcel the problem with this right now, the reason why some doctors cannot get into human trials, even though they've had successful creation of healthy human zygotes in animals. One of the um, individuals on that panel uh, it was a man by the name of uh, Sheldon Krimsky, professor mm-hmm. of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University. And he... He was kind of the antagonist on the, on, the, yeah. on the study, but like one of the things he was bringing up is, well, there's this so-called MAO uh, A warrior gene in human uh, that, that is uh, all about human aggression, mm-hmm. and uh, so then what parent wouldn't eliminate that uh, to make their child less warlike? I guess if you really want your kid to succeed at at sports, you'd say give them two of those if you can. But um, you know, it's that kind of argument people end up making. You know, if you if you can take one one candy from the jar, why mm-hmm. wouldn't you take two? Why wouldn't you take three? Well, so what some of the other panelists said is we're not at that point yet anyway. Yeah. And so and uh, it's not as simple as that. You can't really just go in and say, oh, well, that's the aggression gene. Take it out. Now we're good to go. Exactly. So Nita Farhani, she's a genome science and policy lawyer um, and actually in the Obama administration, uh, was saying that we shouldn't really over-worry this at this point because the technology is not, A, ready for us to select at that level, and B, on some level, we are already selecting for traits. So if you are a woman who is looking for a sperm donor, you're going through a book and you might be selecting for blonde hair. You might be selecting for brown eyes. You might be selecting for their athletic prowess or intellectual abilities. This is kind of already being done at a very basic level. So what she's saying is... This It's time now to look at the past, look at eugenics, you look at the 1970s and some of the guidelines that were created then, and move the goalpost a little bit and then reassess later. And just so that something like mitochondrial transfer can be a reality for parents who are trying to have children who are free of these illnesses or these diseases. Yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, you could certainly argue that looking through um, a portfolio of potential sperm donors, that that's more like, I mean, there's a difference between um, choosing something off a menu and going back into the kitchen and telling them what to put in the soup, right? Right. 
but on the other hand, it's 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 very limiting to sort of shackle yourself to this idea that we cannot proceed because we will mess things up too much. I mean, we would we ever get anything done scientifically if we went forward with that idea? Though, interestingly enough, it seems like we're we're really great at advancing science if we say we're doing this so we can kill people better, and then in which case, all the funding you need. Well, exactly. And but no, it might harm somebody, even though we're trying to help people. Right. We might use it to, uh, there might be some sort of moral concern with it. Therefore, no no procession at all. So what's interesting about this is, is that some of the same arguments were presented when IVF first came um, into public awareness, mm-hmm. so in vitro fertilization. And obviously IVF could not have moved forward unless they did it in human trials and found it to be safe for both the mother and the baby. Yeah. And lo and behold, they found out that that is the case. And that is actually a, a, a path for a lot of parents these days that they go down IVF. And it's so, it's so, uh, sort of rote now that it, it's hard to believe that this was in that same category as mitochondrial transfer 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was mentioned in Future Shock, and we, we talked about it in our Future Shock episode. And if you go back, I mean, I certainly remember those uh, editions of, like, Time Magazine or Newsweek and the sort of the scary idea of the test tube baby. Yeah. Which today, yeah. No, I mean, nobody nobody cares. We're past that, that, that fear. Yeah, so in the same way, mitochondrial transport really needs to have those human trials in order to find out, yes, this is safe for the child, this is safe for the mother, and um, and to see what, if any, risks are associated with it. It's just interesting because, again, it brings up that can of worms of, well, okay, we do this, and as uh, Sheldon Krimsky on the, the uh, panel said, you do that, and there's this concern that we once we start, we won't be able to stop. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess I kind of, to a limited extent, think of it in terms of uh, taking the toddler to the playground. Yes, the toddler's going to injure himself. He's going to fall off of something. He's going to get in a, a tussle with another toddler. But what do you do? Do you not go to the playground at all? Do you just stay in the house on a beautiful day? No, you got to get out there, you gotta right? got to get out there. I mean, we're humans. We're going to mess things up. We're going to create all sorts of problems for ourselves. But... Science has been a, a tool that has allowed us, yes, to uh, to cause great harm in the world, but also do great good. I mean, science is really the the thing that we do the best. I mean, that is the discipline that we've created that is greater than ourselves. Yeah, and there may be some other technologies coming online that actually know these arguments. And so I'm thinking about uh, George Church. He is a geneticist and involved in, in the uh, Human Genome Mapping Project. And he says that genetic diseases can be traced simply by examining sperm and then seeing if it maps against genetic diseases that a female may possess. So he has this whole system where there are like 500 different genetic diseases that they can test for in sperm before it, it is actually um, transferred in to fertilize an egg. Right. The problem with this, of course, is that, you know, if you have a, a couple who they're trying to do this and they know that the mom has some mitochondrial DNA um, diseases that she carries and they find out that the dad does too, well, then that kind of it doesn't really help them. But if you have a female who is seeking a sperm donor, that certainly helps. And then the other technology that may be around the corner is embryonic genome mapping. And that is taking the embryo itself and testing it for possible genetic diseases. Hmm. 
before it's even transferred back into the mother. Interesting. Yeah. So there are these things that are happening um, that, yes, are getting us closer to this idea of these designer babies. And yet at the same time, we are so very far away from that idea, from from that actually happening. I ran across an interesting uh, quote on this uh, this topic. Uh, this is from Ross Duthit, uh, 2012 opinion piece in New York Times entitled Eugenics, Past and Future. He asked, is this sort of liberal eugenics in which the agents of reproductive selection are parents rather than the state entirely different from the eugenics of Fisher's area, which forced sterilization on unwilling women and men? All right, so... It's an interesting question, and I, I feel like Nita Faharani, who is on the panel, would say this is not at all the same thing. These are parents who want to make sure that their child is as disease-free and illness-free mm-hmm. as he or she could be in their lifetime and are trying to, you know, start a family. This this is not some sort of, um, like, government industrial complex on trying to create a these designer babies. This right. is a, these are very individual personal choices versus sort of the state mandate of, of how we're going to go forward with genetics. Yeah. I mean, it's easy. I, I find with myself when I, when I think about this, it's easy to sort of think of it in terms of, all right, well, there are going to be the, the people that are going to be conceivably making a designer baby. I tend to think, well, this is going to be sort of a, uh, an upper crust sort of thing. So there's almost kind of a, like a class envy there, you know, where you think, well, this would be technology that's only going to be available for a certain segment of the population. Uh, you know? Yes, but then for Farahani points out that overwhelmingly, when parents are trying to create biological children, they want them to look like themselves. It's sort of an ego thing. Yeah. So most likely parents aren't going to go way outside of of even how they want their child to be as a human being. And I mean traits like openness or mm-hmm. uh, introverted or extroverted or, you know, all these sort of certain things that determine our personalities, let alone their hair color or their eye color. So I think what Farahani is saying there is that, um, you know, just the, that we may just be over extrapolating this idea that we're going to create these children that are vastly different from ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, so there you have it, designer children. Uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the current science that's out there, the, some of the near future science that's there as well, uh, and a lot of just uh, concerns over the the ethics, the morality of this whole topic. And so I'm sure a lot of you have uh, some informed opinions on all of this. Uh, what do you What do you think about the idea of designer children? Uh, what would What would you do, or what wouldn't you do? Uh, to have healthy offspring. Yeah. What, where do you think the goalposts would be set way too far down the field? I'm very interested in knowing that from you guys out there. Like, what do you think is okay in terms of genetic tinkering and what is like, no, forget it. I say no more than six arms and mm-hmm. uh, no metal skin because it's just, just going to be difficult to handle the playground like that. I was just thinking yeah. on the playground. That's just such an advantage for some children. Yeah, but then how are you going to get them off the playground equipment? You're trying to like, you've, have you ever tried to pull... Your child off of like a ladder or something. It's like mm-hmm. they have amazing grip. Imagine if they had six arms. It would be almost impossible. Yeah, you would need a special instrument for that. Yeah, and then you have to wipe all those hands after they're through, uh, you know, decimating a, a bowl of, of uh, applesauce. It's just, it's just too much. Keeps limit it to really two hands, four max. All right, guys, you know where you can find us, stuff to blow your mind.com. As Robert says, the mothership of everything that is STBYM. 
That's right. Uh, you can also find us on Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google+. Hey, there's also Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. That's where you'll find all of our cool little video projects we're working on. Um, the uh, what Science on the Web, Ethics Science, Monster Science, Julie's latest uh, information elevator. Check all those out. And is there another way that they can get in touch with us as well? Yes. Uh, you may send us an email if you would like. We would love to hear from you. And you can do that by sending it to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 